Hi, this is George Thorgood. Hey, this is Pat Travers. Hey, this is Steve Lukather of Toto. Hey, this is Ryan. Hey, this is Chuck. We're in Black Top Mojo, and you're listening to Guitar Talk with Jimmy Warren. All right, everybody, Jimmy Warren here. Thank you so much for tuning in to Guitar Talk. We're so glad to have you. We have a really great show in store for you today. We've got yet one more awesome blues guitar player, Mr. Mark May. Now, Mark is... uh, you know, he's played kind of all over the place and that. He's originally from Columbus, Ohio, um, so he's been up in that area quite a bit. But, uh, you know, he, he's a really, really good guitar player. And like everybody else right now, you know, just trying to find his way because of this whole uh, COVID thing, which has just really, really put a damper on live music anywhere in the country, it seems like. And so, um, but you're in for a real treat. Mark's a... Uh, uh, a very talented guitar player. Uh, he knows the blues. Uh, he, you know, he's got some, some great insight and some cool stories. And so, you know, it's going to be a, uh, a really good, uh, show for you here. So let me shut up and let's get right into it. This is Guitar Talk with Jimmy Warren and my guest, Mark May. Hello. So Mark. Yes. How you doing? Jimmy Warren. Jimmy, what's going on, man? How you uh, doing? Not a whole lot, man. How you doing? Well, about as good as can be expected in the uh, you know the way the gigs are right now. Oh yeah, man, it's uh, it's not a good thing. Are you getting anything at all? I mean, any you know, maybe maybe some. You know, a little bit. We did some uh, driveway concert streaming shows, and uh, there's you know, if there's uh, where are you at? Where are you located? I'm I'm an hour south of Chicago. Oh, okay. Yeah, down here, if there's a restaurant, you can be open. But if you're just a bar and you don't have a fifty-one percent uh, food license, um, you can't be open. So a lot of the places I play are bars. There's a, there's a couple of places I play at that serve enough food to be open. And, and a couple of them have kind of opened up here or there. Yeah. But, um, most of them are still closed. I don't have very many gigs. Yeah. Just, just a scattered one here or there. Yeah. We've been pretty fortunate. Uh, I know the area that I'm in is, is pretty much shut down. The governor shut it down again recently but uh i do a lot of stuff south central illinois over in indiana and Uh and there's you know there's places that are open so i can get you know three or four gigs a month you know at least yeah we went up there and played at the uh what used to be the rib fest in fort wayne and then over you know where i'm from originally columbus ohio Mm -hmm. and played a couple of gigs at the beginning of the last month uh they actually changed the rip fest into just a concert because uh you know they too many people have come in from out of state some of the rib vendors and contestants and stuff and they just decided to make it a local concert yeah, yeah. with us and they uh well the night we played there was an acdc tribute band and then the next night there was another <laughs> there was a local band and a and a uh fleetwood mac tribute band but i mean they were from big bands i mean from ones from louisville ones from atlanta so i'm sure he paid them a lot of money you know? yeah 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 those 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 bands make a lot more than any of the rest of us oh yeah know? yeah it's crazy so that's what you need to do you know just become a you know muddy water tribute band or 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I got the charisma to be a muddy water tribute band. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I got it. I got it. I got it. So, so, I might be able to do an Almond Brothers tribute band, you know, but I don't know. I just the, the thought of just standing up there and pretending like I'm somebody else at this point right. when I when I really still care about music and want to put music out, I just I just can't do it, man. You know? Yeah, I I think you got to be at the place to where. Either one, you absolutely love that band so much, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, that you, you know, you call it an honor or a privilege to be able to do that. And the other thing yeah. is, is that, you know, it, money's got to be a little bit more important to you than the music. Yeah, if you're desperate for money, I mean, anybody could do anything. I mean, when yeah. I first came down here, I did a few wedding gigs, you know, with this band down here called the Royal Dukes. And they're all great musicians and friends of mine and stuff. But after doing a couple of them, I was just like, man, I can't do this. Yeah. I don't, I don't care if it pays four or $500 a night. I just. <laughs> yeah, it's hard for creative, expressive people. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, when you've get... been doing it for so long, you feel like a sellout, you know? Yeah, yeah. You don't want to get boxed in. Uh... Mm-hmm into something and that you but know. you know you never say never right 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 <laughs> you need the money the way things are going right now i could be doing anything That's six right. months from now if things don't change a little bit <laughs> oh yeah it's 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 pretty bad you know i've i've you know uh seen a few people that i know on facebook you know starting to talk about you know they're starting to sell off their gear you know, uh-huh. some uh-huh. people are, you know, saying, well, I got another month and then I have to, you know, go to work at, you know, Home Depot or something, you know, got to do something else. Yeah. Well, they keep cutting back the unemployment, too. You yeah. know, I mean, I got got an unemployment. And so but then now that they've cut it back and it's just going to be a couple hundred bucks a week, you know, so I mean, I can't live on that. So I am going to probably after I get done with you today, start making some calls and seeing what I can come up with and set up some more streaming shows and, you know, things like that. Maybe trying to get a few, just been kind of leaving my lesson people alone. And, you know, and the guy that I, the music, I don't give very many um, lessons at the music store. A lot of them are at people's houses, but the guy at the music store said the room's just too small. He can't take the chance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can always do them on, you can always do them online. You can do Zoom. I can do them online. I've thought about that too, you know. I I thought about maybe starting to do that, you know, because, um, but, uh, I'm not really super technology guy, but I I did a couple of interviews on Zoom and it it was fairly easy to do the interviews. I know the teaching's a little harder because you can't really talk at the same time, kind of. You gotta, you know, kind of wait. You know, on each other to finish, but it can be done. I'm sure. You know, and I'm sure I'll do whatever I have to do. Right, right. Where there's a will, there's a way. You'll find a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know a lot of guys that, you know, don't give lessons or don't like to give lessons, mm-hmm. and now you know they're giving lessons. You know, they have to yeah. take on a handful mm-hmm. of students. You know, to sure. help get by and stuff like that. Sure. And that yeah. stuff. So, hey, let's let's go back to the early days for Mark May. Um, okay. Right. You, you know, we we all got a starting place in that. Uh, what was that point for you? How did you get interested in the guitar? And uh, what were your major influences in the very, very beginning? Um, you know, um, I grew up in a musical family around Columbus, Ohio area. And... Um, my brother was a guitar player slash bass player, singer, songwriter guy. And my mom was, uh, played acoustic guitar and sang, uh, mainly country and bluegrass style. And she wrote a lot of songs too. So my brother was the rock and roll and blues guy, you know, that turned me on to the Beatles and 
Hendrix and Cream and all these people like that, Santana, you know, and uh, my mom, you know, we did a lot of old bluegrass standards around the house, you know, they were really into, you know, like Georgia Jones and Tammy Wynette, that style of country music and stuff. My uncle was a really good bluegrass player, but he lived down in uh, Kentucky, so I only got to see him about, you know, maybe once a year or so, but he was definitely kind of, you know, a little bit of an influence because... You know, the family played a lot of bluegrass being from eastern Kentucky. They were, you know, it's kind of part of their whole reg- old regular Baptist gospel style, too, you know. Yeah. So that that got me started playing music. And uh, just mainly played around the house with, with my mom and brother for a long time. And then when I was about 15, I started doing a few gigs with a friend of ours named Jack Willis and um, my brother. And so we did that for a little while. And I ended up being in a band out in Newark, Ohio, uh, called Diamonds and Rust, which was kind of a strange band. It was half a rock and roll band, half Elvis tribute band. The, the lead singer did this Elvis tribute thing, and uh, we did that. Um, but it kind of turned into later just the rock thing because he got tired of doing the, the Elvis show. Yeah. Uh, even though he was good at it, he was blonde-haired guy, I didn't didn't really look the part as much, but, uh, you know, he did a good job, but it was, so when I started doing that, you know, and, um, and then I was writing some songs by the time I was, you know, five or six years old, I have some cassette copies of some of the songs that I've written and things like that when I was real young. So being around my, my brother and my mom and all them writing, I just kind of naturally just took up, you know, right after them, you know? Yeah. So did you, uh, did you take formal lessons in the early days, or were you just taught by your brother or self-taught? Or um, I was mostly taught by my brother, and luckily he had played in a band called J.D. Blackfoot, which was a band around Columbus that had a deal with Mercury Records. It had an album out called The Ultimate Prophecy yeah. in 1970. And in that band, he had Craig Fuller that was that started Pure Prairie League, you know, and did Amy and all that stuff, you know, right. the first album and who later ended up being Little Feet and stuff. So he was a really good guitar player, kind of a uh, southern rock kind of, you know, he was real, real into Almond Brothers and different things, country and things like that. So he kind of had that style. And they had another guy named Jeff Whitlock who was just a, um, a rock guitarist. So my brother picked up a few things from them, just scales and stuff, and he showed them to me when I was pretty young. So by the time I was, you know, 12 or 13, I was, you know, playing solos, you know, and you didn't know how good they were by any means, but <laughs> it got to the point where my brother just, I learned them. The first solo I ever really learned off a record, I think, was While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And after I showed it to my brother, he's like, wow, I guess I guess you're the, the lead guitar player now, you know, because he couldn't do it, you know. <laughs> and uh, But uh, so he ended up playing bass. And we do, you know, just little duo shows at my junior high or things like that, and and, um, but yeah, that's kind of how the whole thing got, got started, but I mainly learned from him and just, you know, I had a pretty good ear to pick up stuff off records. Yeah. So what, what kind of guitar were you playing when you first started? Um, he was left-handed, so he had a couple of guitars around the house all the time, but I, you know, I would play them upside down uh, a little bit, which I still remember a few chords and can play a little bit that way, but not very well. But for Christmas, I got a small harmony acoustic was the first one it was just like a 
you know, light colored harmony acoustic. Mm-hmm. And a couple of years later, he sold me a Gibson Melody Maker, yeah. one of the ones that looked, looked like an SG. Um, it's kind of a blue colored. I don't know what the what they call the color, but got that. And then that was my first electric guitar. Was that um, that Melody Maker? And it was, you know, it was a pretty good guitar. Um, and then I remember when I was, I think, 16, I looked in the, well, the, I think it was called the Trading Times that we had. It was, you know, newspaper where people bought and sold stuff. And I bought a 66 Fender Stratocaster for $325 <laughs> at the time, you know. And uh, that was my main guitar for a long time. Yeah. So and, would uh, you consider yourself uh, today, um, you know, uh, a, a gearhead. I mean, are you a guy that's really into, you know, pedals and you know the whole gear aspect, or you you more of a simple uh, player in the sense that you know just plug into the amp, maybe a pedal or two, kind of thing. I have a pretty big pedal board. Yeah, I can't say I'm near as big of a gearhead as a lot of my friends. I think my friends who are you know, not band leaders, uh, maybe have more time to experiment with, you know, different pedals and things like that. You know, um, it seems like I always have something to do, but, but I do, yeah, I, I buy a lot of pedals and, uh, I usually use, a, a, you know, a couple of different overdrives, like a clean boost and an overdrive and have several on my, on my pedal board along with, uh, you know, quite a few different effect pedals, and I use a wah wah pedal a lot. So I do, I do use a lot of pedals. I don't, I don't use them like a lot at once. You know, I use the wah wah probably more than anything else. But I, mm-hmm. I do kind of play with an overdriven sound with the, um, with my main guitar, which is a uh, Robin Savoy, which yeah. is kind of like a three thirty five. Right. And it sounds real nice. I kind of got that from listening, I think, to Chris Kane. You know. Yeah. You know, because he played that. Uh, 335 through the boogie and uh it was just a sweet tone and i kind of you know got hooked on that you know because i always played fenders for a long time you know mm-hmm. and uh when i first started and did my first album i was playing a telecaster because i was had been playing country a lot with different people but also a friend of mine gave me an Albert collins album i really liked it and i was already playing a telly so kind of played that for the first couple of cds and, uh, and then i the strat for a little while and then um um i had uh, a pv endorsement and i played this guitar called a forenza which was kind of my model which was actually a pretty nice guitar mm-hmm. um played it for a little while and then i ended up getting on the robin I, I, it's got so much sustain and fatness you know with being a hollow body that it's it's hard for me to get away from it you know yeah it's, it's got really nice sustain and really good time yeah yeah, and so what kind of uh, overdrive pedal you got on your board right now? <clears throat> um, I use a TS9 or 808, I believe okay. it is actually yeah. reissue, and um, it's kind of strange the way I set it up. Really, it's a um, um, Greg Walton uh, who uh, owns Exactone, um, one of the owners of Exactone out of Nashville that makes pedals and stuff. He used to help me set my pedal boards up, and we. We use the sparkle drive as my clean boost with the gain all the way down, mm-hmm. uh, and and then use the T TS eight oh eight 
or TS9, whatever I had at the time, because I've gone through different ones, as the overdrive. And it actually worked pretty good. This is kind of back before everybody had these all these clean boost pedals. But I've been using those two pedals together forever and um, kind of got used to it. It's kind of nice because the uh, Sparkle Drive has a, a tone and, and a clean knob on it, and plus it has a volume knob. Right. So, you know, I can reach down with my foot and adjust the, the volume if I can't hear myself a little bit. You know, I can get to the volume knob and uh, give myself a little boost if I'm getting buried in the mix a little bit when we get loud. Uh, but, but yeah, the gain on it just usually stays down on zero. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think uh, stacking, you know, overdrives like that, you know, is is a really good way to go. I do that personally myself. I like the, yeah, it, I like the sound. Right. Like yeah. yeah, it gives you, it gives you a, a definitely a lot more sustain and punch to your to your sound, you know. Yeah, so what kind of amp are you going to, If I was to come see you play, what kind of amp would you have on stage right now with that rig? Well, I've been going back and forth between, uh, for years I played um, this Nailer Superdrive 60. Okay. And um, lately I've, I've been also using a uh, Cat 5, Category 5 uh, Vera. Right. right. So uh, I kind nice. of go back and forth between those. Um, you know, they're, they're both good amps. They're, they're quite a bit different between them, but, um, they both have a really, you know, good, unique sound to them and, uh, certain things that, you know, one of them does that the other one doesn't do. So, you know, it's nice to have different style amps like that for, you know, different kinds of recordings or, or gigs or whatever, you know? Right. Sometimes the, uh, you know, use them both. You know, running AB or. We usually don't play places big enough to, um, you know, yeah. To we don't do a whole lot of big theater or festival gigs, and if we do, we're out on the road, and there's not much space in the van. Yeah. So usually, I just use one or the other. There's, uh, it would be nice if I could use both. Doesn't that actually be a great combination? <laughs> you know, and I thought about it at one point, maybe looking for a instead of a two twelve nailer, a one twelve nailer, and talking to Don at Cat Five and seeing if I could maybe get a, oh, you know, one twelve. Uh, category five because i think they would be really sweet together you know because i i did some recording on my new album that way with both of them yeah and it sounded really nice yeah i know i i recently you know i'd say over the last couple of years went to uh the low wattage amps mm-hmm. you know like the mesa boogie fillmore which is uh-huh. only 20 25 watts or the new marshall slv 20 you know uh-huh but uh you know. I think a lot of people are because yeah. uh you know these what we used to laugh at was the twenty or twenty five watt amp back in the old days uh they're a lot louder than they they used to be, oh yeah, you know they put out a lot more than than what these uh older amps that were low wattage like that do, so you can if you don't if you're playing a three piece and you don't have a real loud drummer or something, you can definitely play play gigs with the, i have uh, also a twenty five watt uh boogie uh Rectoverb, I believe it's called. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, it's plenty loud enough just for a little three-piece gig. You know, I use it occasionally. Yeah. Um, but we're, you know, I said we're a pretty loud band. Um, we try to play with dynamics. You know, when somebody else is singing or when I'm backing somebody else up on rhythm, the other guitarist on, uh, when he's playing lead, I, I try just to come in kind of underneath the bass and drums and let them carry it because they'll usually play a little louder on the solos and I don't really need to turn up, but yeah, we're still, we, you know, we're a pretty loud drummer 
And um, so we, we still use, you know, 50, 60 watt amps, you know, nothing, nothing huge, no hundred waters or, you know, four twelves or anything. But, uh, you know, as a blues artist, you play a lot of, a lot of clubs and um, you can get away with, with those kind of amps if, um, if you don't crank them too much. Um, You know, if you got pedals and stuff, you can usually turn them down. You you know that, you know, Right. But uh, some of them, you get much more bodies than that, and they just don't come alive unless you can really crank them up, you know. Yeah. Now your guitars, do you uh, do you have a tendency to to modify them, or do you keep everything pretty much stock? <clears throat> well, the Robin stock, um, the um, I have a, a Les Paul, a newer Les Paul that I uh, basically just changed the pickups out on it. I put. I, Put some of the uh, Jimmy Wallace uh, vintage humbuckers on it, mm-hmm. uh, because for some reason the the original ones I had on it were squealy, especially the back pickup. So um, did that. Um, I have a couple of Telecasters that I put uh, B benders on. You know, back back when I was playing country and stuff, and I, and I use use those B benders also on a, on a few of my. I have a couple of country blues songs on my albums. One's called She Ain't Coming Home on my first um, album. And uh, the album before this, Blues Heaven, has a song on it called Put Down That Poison. And um, so, you know, I, I, sometimes I'll use those B-benders on stuff like that. And, and you know, it's just kind of interesting just to mix up your sound a little bit with something like that. Yeah. But I wouldn't say I heavily modify very many of my guitars. Most of them are fairly stock. You know? Right. Now the one you said that your is your main guitar, and that did did they build that to suit you, or was that something stock that they had that you just kind of fell in love with? Well, you know they're based out of Houston here where I live, and mm-hmm. I don't think they're making guitars right now, but uh, they had been since the seventies, I believe. And the factory was basically right down the street from where I was living at, and my um, a guy that was managing me at the time, Dwayne Marsh, uh, was. Um, uh, doing some rep work for them and he had me come by there and uh, I saw that one you know it's a I don't know if you've seen pictures of it or not it's it's a gold top yeah and it's shaped like a Les Paul but it's a 335 basically it just only has one cutaway mm-hmm. and then it's got white binding on it. it's you know it's a real classic cool almost like it's got that 295 look about it but it's not thick like that yeah you know it basically looks like that only it's it, a little bit shaped more like a, a 335, you know, size wise and everything. Yeah. Uh, but it was just something they had there, you know, and it had the, uh, the Rio Grande, uh, barbecue buckers on it and, uh, they really sound great. And so uh, I didn't play it a whole lot when I first got it. It was cause I was still playing fenders a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, a little later on when my, uh, whatever guitar I was using at the time was in the shop for a little while. I started playing that, that Robin a lot. And like I said, it, um, once I got used to that sustain and tone and stuff, it was, it was, it was really strange. I would watch people play Fender guitars and thought they sounded great, you know, or single coil style guitars. Mm-hmm. But when I would try to play them, it just, it sounded like a mosquito or something. It just, you know, I couldn't, my style had kind of changed to adapt to the sustain and different things. And, um, it was, um, was having a hard time going back to them. So I just kind of stuck with the more humbucker kind of thing, um, for the last, I don't know, probably 10 years, you know? Yeah. And, 
it, but it, I do use the fenders, uh, you know, and things like that when I record that, that telly that has the B bender on it, which was yeah. built built by a friend of mine here in Houston, uh, Huey Wilkinson, axe handle guitars, and um, it, it's a semi hollow body telly uh, style, mm-hmm. and uh, it's got Joe Bardens on it, so it's kind of souped up, you know. But yeah. um, and then I have a custom shop strap that I strap that I used um, uh, on a few songs on the CD also. So I tend to, when I record, use a little bit more variety and I, I keep promising myself. And right now I'm trying to put together a strat with uh, some kind of noiseless pickups on it or something so I can, can go out and, and play it live because, you know, some of these clubs and places you play at have such a 60 cycle hum that if you use very much overdrive or anything, it's, it's almost impossible, almost unbearable. Yeah, well, you know, you should check out the uh, Zex coil pickups. Well, you know, that's yeah. the ones that I have right now that I put on this guitar. You yeah. know, that I'm uh, that I'm uh, putting together. It's just a strat that I yeah, and I just put them on like last week, so I hadn't had much chance to play them out live or anything. Just playing around the house, but yeah, they have a good time. So yeah. that yeah. may, that may be the answer. You know. Yeah, I know that uh, most. I I don't I don't have. I'm on my guitar, but I know a lot of people that do, and uh, they talk about how there's no noise with them. As a matter of fact, I just interviewed Scott Lawing, who makes them, not that okay. long ago, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, it's well, there's you know, there's so many different. It's it's hard, you know, when you're a guitar player. There's so many options out there. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's unreal, and uh, it, it, it drives me crazy because it's like I see mm-hmm. something new, and it's like. You know, I gravitate toward it, and I get it, and then I go, oh, yeah. okay, well, it's not as good as what I had. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I mean, I have a lot, of, yeah, a lot of stuff that I've bought, it just, you know, sits around, and you're just, like, yeah. hoping for that thing that changes your life, yeah. you know? And yeah. uh, sometimes you run onto it, and a lot of times it's just like, well, okay, that's cool. It'll be good for this or that, but you don't really end up using it as much as what you thought you might, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting these X coils out with the um, – with the band, and um, I might try a couple of different, you know, uh, noiseless uh, Fender pickups. I really like the sound of that custom shop uh, Strat I have. It's a holograph sparkle from, I want to say, the late 80s or early 90s, kind of a dark, you know, almost black-looking sparkle yeah. with a pearl pit guard on it, and I bought it at, at one of the Dallas or Arlington guitar shows mm-hmm. a long time ago, and it's really got a nice sound to it. I, I love recording with it and stuff, so... But uh, yeah, I'm trying to trying to force myself to get back into uh, playing these Fender style guitars a little bit because they just every time I hear people playing, I'm like, that's a, that's a really nice tone too. You know, I mean, I, lo- I love the tone <laughs> I got with my Robin, but um, but then you know you're carrying all these different guitars because you know yeah. I play slide on a Gibson Nighthawk, you know, yeah, uh, and um, I'm not a great slide player, but I play a lot in open tuning, like open E or something, you know, kind of just easy. And, um, so I carry a different guitar for that. And then for a while there, I had this, um, Jerry Jones double neck longhorn Dan Electro guitar that's got a baritone on it. Oh, yeah. And a regular guitar. And I use that on several of my recordings too. And it's really cool. And, you know, it's a nice conversation piece when you pull it out. People like to, like to see it because it's crazy looking and it's turquoise and white. It's beautiful, you know? And, yeah. You know, and I got that back when I was playing country also, you know, because of a couple of songs I heard that some guys were using it on. And uh, I like using it on some of the shuffles and things like that. It has a really 
cool, you know, unique sound to it, that low twangy sound. And I'm sure you've seen, uh, um, Greg Koch, um, play the, probably the, one of those uh, reverend baritones. Yeah. Uh, which mine is, mine has, mine's tuned to E. It's tuned real low. It has like thin bass strings on it. I don't think any of the strings are, are unwound. Where I think a lot of these guys have those ones that are halfway between that and, and a guitar that are tuned to what, B or something? Yeah. Yeah, and they have a couple of, couple of unwound strings on them maybe, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the one I have is a little hard to play because it's a double neck and the strings are, you know, thick. But it sure sounds cool, you know, when you put a lot of treble on it and a little bit of reverb or slap back or something. And um, you can really get a cool old-timey sound out of it. So um, uh, I like using that, too. But uh, like I said, you know, you, you go to these gigs and how many guitars can you take? And, you know, yeah. and, and you know, where can you even put the cases in some of these smaller clubs? And, yeah. And it's... Um, but it's still fun, you know. I mean, I know guys that take, you know, five or six or seven or eight guitars with them every gig. I'm like, gosh, you know. Yeah. It's, it's a lot to carry around and store and yeah. keep track of, too, with people walking away with stuff, you know. Yeah, that's it right there. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, when you stop and think about it, you know, how much money you got on the stage, you know, it gets uh, rather daunting, you know. I used to take you know, five or six guitars myself for a long mm-hmm. time. And I take three now, you know, yeah. because I love a telly. I think, you know, my opinion, even though I've always was always a Strat guy, I mm-hmm. always felt, I always, I, I think that the telly is probably to me, one of the best all around guitars that you can play. You know, I love the feel of it. I love the sound of mm-hmm. it, you know, and I've got a variety of them. I think I got maybe 14 or 15 of them. So I got a variety, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> you know, but I, I love a telly. So I always take a telly. I take a Les Paul and I used to take a, a Strat, but, um, a year ago I went out on a whim and I bought a, um, Ibanez Prestige. Uh-huh. You know, one of their S models, and you know, it's my number one. I absolutely love that guitar, and yeah. it feels good. It plays great, and the the wiring, the way that it's wired, it not only gives you the configuration with the pickups that you would get in a normal Strat, but it's got another switch on it that allows you to combine uh, some of the other pickups to make them into like you can take the the bridge pickup in the center pickup, which are single coils on this guitar, and you can make mm-hmm. them into a humbucker. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, there's some really unique, uh, you know, tonal options there, but the guitar plays like a dream. Oh, my Lord. You it's know, called a Prestige? Yeah. It's, oh, I, got oh, the, wow. I got the Tom Quayle model. Uh-huh. Because I, I love the, you know, it's got it's made out of monkey pod wood. It's got some kind of you know, wood look to it and that, but the guitar, it's got a fire roasted maple neck. It's uh it's a nice guitar, but I, I never thought I would like, you know, I've always heard good things about, you know, the Japanese made Ibanez's, but I'd, sure. I'd never played one. But once I did, it was like, I, I don't know if I wouldn't ever have that as my number one. And these are fairly new guitars. Uh, the, well, the AZs and the prestige has been around, you know, for, for a while. But mm-hmm. but now they're starting to make more of them in Japan. So now there's more models out there to, to oh, choose gosh. from. Before there wasn't too much, you know. 
in that but uh yeah they're 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 great i think they make two models they make a premium and a prestige and the premium is made in indonesia but the uh, prestige is made in japan and there really is a difference you know there's, there's i'm a, sure there is yeah, yeah there's a difference in them but anyway so i got i gotta know you know uh you're you're playing blues with your brother and you got some bands and you're you're doing your thing you know, what led to the uh, Dickie Betts gig? Okay, well, yeah, I'll just run down the quick history there. I, I started out, like I said, you know, uh, kind of just playing a variety of music. You know, in back in the 80s, I was playing in some country bands. And uh, I moved out to California with my brother for a short time period. And we played some country. And I moved back to Ohio. And we had a he came back there. And we had a family band with my mom. And we played country and, you know, variety, kind of a, you know, some rock and roll, but mainly country stuff. And he took off and uh, came down here to Houston uh, with his wife because she's from here. And I followed her down here. And so I got down here. I was, you know, didn't know anybody. And I was playing in a couple of country bands. And then I put a more of a harder rock band together with some guys and did that for a couple of years. We were playing a lot of 80s rock, you know, everything from Doc and the Queens Ride to Led Zeppelin and all that right. kind of stuff, you know. Right. And um, somebody, uh, Tesla's uh, manager swooped up the singer and took him off to California. And uh, then I went back to playing country for a little while. And um, I just kind of got the blues bug. I'd already, I've always had it from the time I was young, just listening to Hendrix. And my aunt had given me a B.B. King live at Cook County Jail. Oh, yeah. And I really, really liked it a lot. And, you know, just love the feel of the passion and everything. But, you know, at the time down here in Texas, you know, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan was hot, you know, and, and you know, ZZ Top's always been, you know, yeah. hot, and, you know. And, and I just kind of got, got hooked on the blues thing, especially after that guy at the jam session I was playing that gave me that Albert College album. I really got into that. And, um, so I started putting this blues band together in like 1992 and decided that's what I wanted to do because I was, had been doing this Monday night jam at this place and I was, you know, I was pretty good at doing country. I could sing it pretty good and play it pretty good, you know, but I was getting really good reaction and have a lot of fun playing this, this classic rock and blues at this jam session. And I, um, so I put this blues band together and got a harmonica player and we had kind of a Thunderbirds kind of set up and, and a little more rock than that, but still in that, you know, that vein for the first album. And we got signed with Ice House Records out of Memphis, which was Johnny Phillips, uh, uh, Sam Phillips' nephew, I believe, and, you know, and select the hits. And yeah. he had this label called Ice House. And I got my first two CDs around that. So that first CD, we had been going out to Florida and playing some. And I had a couple fans out there that, um, that, in Sarasota area that, that really liked the band. And, uh, one of the guys and his dad owned a golf shop and Dickie was, Dickie Betts was shopping in there. And, uh, he told Dickie, he said, man, I know you like blue stuff. You gotta listen to my buddy's CD. And, you know, and Dickie said, well, you know, I took the CD from the guy and I threw it in the glove box on my Lexus. And he said, I just, <laughs> people give me stuff all the time. He said, I never <laughs> listened to it. I just listened to all my favorites, Billy Joe Shaver and all these people he loved, you know? Yeah. And, um, he said the guy just wouldn't wouldn't leave him alone about it. So he said, finally, he just said, I'm going to put the CD in so I can just tell him what I think about it to get him on my back, you know. And so he 
you put it on. He said, man, I really liked, you know, you played a lot of cool Albert Collins lick. I, licks, I thought your voice sounded a little bit like Freddie King's. And so finally I got a call from the guy and he said, Dickie wants to meet you. And I'm like, sure he does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because <laughs> nobody, nobody ever expects that call, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> so I said, okay. I said, we're coming out there to play some gigs and, you know, in about a month. And we went out there and played at the five o'clock club in Sarasota. And, and uh, Dickie came out, and it was like a Thursday night or something. There wasn't even that many people there, but he um, he really liked us and uh, said, you know, I'm going to talk to my manager about maybe putting you guys on a couple of shows opening for us, um, places where we don't need a, a, a support act that can draw a lot of people. If we're playing someplace where we know we're going to sell out, right. then I'm going to try to get him to uh, – because, you know, all along the East Coast and stuff, those Almond Brothers shows were all – sold out you know they didn't really need need a bunch of help selling out stuff yeah. at that time that was in the 90s you know it was like 97 and so we ended up doing about 15 dates with them and then a few more the next year um so then uh you know i was up touring i was in my hometown of ohio at my parents house you know we we're going out doing a few gigs different places and using that as a home base up there in the midwest and i got a call from him well, the first call I got from him was 97. After we talked about the gigs, I got a page because nobody had cell phones. And my buddy said, hey, uh, Dickie wants to talk to you. And I just thought he wanted to talk to me about, um, you know, the upcoming tour that he asked us about. But I call him and he says, hey, man, um, he goes, I don't want to break up your band or anything. He said, do you think you and your bass player might want to come try out for the Almond Brothers? You know, just like, what did you just say? <laughs> and I'm thinking in my man, my mind, no, break my band up, you know. Yeah. But um, you know, it's about the time when uh, Warren and Alan were doing the government mule thing, and um, yeah. you know, just we're thinking about doing something different. And uh, I said, I really don't play slide that much. I said, I would love to play with you guys. It'd be you know more of an honor than I could ever imagine. But he said, you know, when Dwayne died, he goes, I played slide. And he said, if you can just play a little bit, you know, I like your singing and songwriting and stuff. And so I went and, and tried out for the band uh, in 97. And it was just me and Dickie and, and the bass player who was trying out, David Stoltz. You know, no drummer, no Greg, no, you know, yeah. just the three. Very strange tryout. So I had... Uh, worked up a couple of songs on slide thinking if I got the job, I just go home and play 14 hours a day and get good enough. It was very uh, intimidating after, you know, not really being a slide player and you have Dwayne Allman and Warren Haynes and these people. It was just like, right. I, it just didn't seem like that could, could work. And uh, so I practiced a couple of songs and tried to get him down and I, I got Statesboro Blues down pretty well. And got over there and he's, we played a couple of songs. He goes, how about playing some slide? And I said, yeah, um, okay. And I said, let's do a Statesboro Blues. He said, you know what, Mark? He said, I, I think I'm going to do that one on slide. Why don't we do dreams? And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was like, I was not really prepared. I'd gone over it, but I mean, I, you know, yeah. wasn't that good in the first place. But anyway, I did not end up getting the job because Jack Pearson tried out. Of course, Jack's one of the best on the planet. And yeah. When I saw him play, I was kind of like, oh, wow, I bet it took us at least, or it took them at least 15 seconds to decide between me and him. You know, he's just phenomenal and you know and, and uh but anyway a couple of years later in 2000 i was up there in ohio doing that tour and he called me at my parents house and uh said that uh, he was 
no longer playing with the brothers and, you know, ask if I wanted to come play with him. And, um, so I ended up playing with him for a couple of years there in 2000 and 2001, which, you know, it was a great experience. You know, we made an album. We did some shows with Charlie Daniels and 38 Special and the Doobie Brothers. And, you know, it was really cool just to kind of see the way he did things and, you know, yeah. how it's worked on a bigger level, you know? Yeah. No, that's really cool. It's cool when you get to play with a piece of history like that. Yeah, just to play songs yeah. like Rambo Man and Elizabeth Reed and Jessica, yeah. Blue Skies, and, you know, those songs with the guy who wrote them and see the people in the audience that, that all know them and love them and sing all the words. It's, um, you know, yeah. just something that when you're growing up that you just don't think, I mean, you hope something like that crazy would happen to you. But, you know, if you're a realistic person, you got to realize that not very many people get to play with, you know, their people they grew up listening to, heroes and, you know, people they admired. So, yeah. It's just something that uh, I never thought would happen, but, you know, it was, it was awesome. You know, I, I really, uh, really enjoyed it, you know. And so, I got back a couple of years later doing my thing, so. So how did that experience, you know, translate into, you know, or help you, I should say, when you went on to do your, your own thing again? Um, I think mainly just um, when it comes to uh, things I learned from Dickie, it was about building solos and building big parts and songs and using dynamics and things like that, you know, uh, you know, because he was so good at all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, such a great songwriter. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if as much of his great songwriting, you know, rubbed off on me as I'd like, but, uh, I tried to listen to, you know, listen to his lyrics and he would tell us stories about what he wrote the songs about, you know, which would, you know, make you think a little bit more instead of, you know, in the blues world, just writing that, you know, my baby done left me kind of song, yeah. you know, trying to write songs with more content about subjects that you care about. You know, um, you know, he told us all the, the story about writing seven turns, you know, and, you know, cause he, he, you know, was good friends with a, a lot of native American Indians and stuff and stories they told him and stuff. And it was really interesting to, uh, to listen to stuff like that and, and, you know, make you think a little bit deeper about songwriting and things like that, you know, but, um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely a good experience as far as just playing with somebody who had done it all and was, was kind of a master of what he did, you know? Yeah. So now, uh, you know, when you go into the studio, when you go to do your own thing in that, um, are you, are you really mindful of, well, let's talk about the solos. Are you really mindful of the solos or is it something that, you know, that you really plan out and structure or is it something that, you know, you just, you know, feel in the moment and then it becomes, becomes what it becomes after, you know, a couple of tries, um, you know? Well, I mean? there's, yeah, there's different, different, um, it depends on the song. Yeah. Um, there are some songs that I like to write, uh, a signature part almost like a melody to mm -hmm. and have it appear in the song a couple of times just like a catchy hook line you know yeah uh and then sometimes um if the chord changes are a little strange or whatever i will work out the solos in them and, and try to be prepared but uh, other songs uh that are more you know just uh blues oriented simpler things you know i might say well i don't need to really work out anything for that i'll just you know, take a few passes out of it and, and, and pick, you know, pick the best one or whatever, right. you know. Right. So it just, it just kind of depends on the song. I kind of like doing it both ways. You know, that way you have some things that are, 
you know, semi-improvised uh, on the album and some things that are that worked out just part parts-wise because I also do a lot of twin lead stuff on my albums, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, of course, that stuff has to be worked out beforehand. Right. Now, when you're uh, playing live, do you stick to the formula of the song or do you just, you know, um, follow the structure loosely when it comes to your soloing? Um, I would think that uh, most of the time we stick to the structure pretty good. You yeah. know, there, there are times when we'll, uh, experiment, you know, uh, what I like to do with stuff like that is if it's a slow night or towards the end of the night when some of the people had left, if, um, you know, if we try something different, uh, it's kind of fun to, to try something different. And then maybe if it works out good, then you can start maybe sticking it in the song in the regular basis for a little while, yeah. uh, just to change up things a little bit. Uh, but in general, I think, you know, we, we stick to arrangements pretty, pretty well. Uh, but I do like to experiment and stick new parts in things just to make it a little more interesting and not just, uh, just not this, you know, same thing over and over night after night, even though, uh, you know, it's easier to stay tight that way if you, if you stick to that. But, um, right. but I still like to change things up here and there to, uh, I don't know, just give people something they're not quite expecting. You know, a lot of the songs that we have just gradually over the years change. And, you know, you might add a little piece of another song in there or, or you know, an extended solo or things like that. So yeah. they've changed over the years, but it's kind of it's kind of more slowly. And I wouldn't say like a nightly thing where we're just trying all kinds of different uh, strange stuff, like a, more like a jam band would, you know. Yeah. So what do you do to... Uh to stay sharp on the guitar do you do you play a lot in your off time are you always trying to learn you know something new uh, do you have a structured you know i don't want to call it practice because at your level it's not really practicing anymore it's you know you know i don't i don't practice as much as i'd like to like i said because uh, it seems like i get up every day being a band leader and have a list of 20 things that need to be done yeah. um i try to come up with some new licks and, and new uh techniques and stuff whenever i record an album mm -hmm. you know um i've been trying to practice slide a little bit more since you know the uh the pandemic you know coronavirus thing because i'm really would like to get a lot better at that i can't improvise a whole lot on on that and um but um i just like to uh, sit down and um you know nowadays you can just find a youtube backing track or something like that and, and practice uh yeah, uh, with a different groove or something that you hadn't played with, and uh, it's, I like to put on stuff like I'm not a really good swing player. I play shuffles pretty good, but uh, when it comes to swing, I think I'm lacking the feel. So lately, I've been putting on some of that stuff just to um, try to, you know, make my style a little more flowing. Yeah. Um, but now that uh, we're not doing quite as much, and now that the um, I've done. Uh, I was doing a whole bunch of interviews and and things like that, having to do with the CD when it first came out uh, a couple months ago. Uh, it's a little bit slower now, so I've, I've got a little bit more time to practice. So I'm trying to spend half the time um, trying to work up a, a couple of streaming shows to do with some of my different equipment. Like I worked up a uh, a uh, instrumental version of the old Merle Haggard song "Silver Wings" with my B Bender guitar. You know, oh, cool. it's just strange things like that, that, um, that I could use, um, you know, to try to do, make my streaming show uh, and show some of my equipment, guitars, pedals, that stuff, uh, 
so I'm trying to get that together right now. Uh, and uh, but I don't practice as much as I'd like to, just on playing uh, solos and techniques. Uh, I, I'm definitely a little bit tired of some of the stuff I, I play. I would love to sit down and just spend a couple of months just learning a whole bunch of different techniques, coming up up with some of my own licks and maybe borrowing a couple off of uh, people I admired, you know, to uh, stick into some of my stuff or or change to be my own, you know, my own style. Um, But uh, I don't have a regimented uh, time that I, that I play. I wouldn't say like some guys who just uh, practice a a whole lot. We do so much playing when, uh, when things are going, you know, we play three or four nights a week, a lot of times, and then, then get out on the road a little bit and play a little bit more per week when you're out on the road. So, uh, Get a lot of practice in doing that, uh, but uh, you know that stuff doesn't change your style that much or add to it because you're playing a lot of the same stuff. You know? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's the common that's the common story. You know, it's like guys don't get a chance to to really you know work on themselves because you know they're working, they're playing gigs, and when you're playing gigs, you don't have the time to fiddle around. It's not everybody that can you know, pull a Randy Rhodes and take a guitar lesson in every town you go to. <laughs> right. Well, cause they got, pe- yeah, they got people setting up all their gear and doing right. their laundry for them and all this other stuff. Right. And, uh, you don't have you know, that so list it, of stuff to do that you have. Right. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and, uh, so it, it, uh, it just makes it hard to, uh, yeah. you know, and the thing is, I think sometimes, I mean, you know, I look at guys, uh, talking about, uh, Greg Koch earlier and you know, he plays so many styles so great you know yeah. we all want to we all want to be like that you know like a guy there's you know quite a few guys like that that can, can just not just play every style but play it really good you yeah. know Jack Pearson some of these people you know you can't you know you just can't stump them on jazz or blues or rock or country they can play it all good yeah. they're really good you know, but, you know, when you think about it the other way, it's like, okay, you know, if you listen to a B.B. King album or an Albert King album or Freddie King, they pretty much played the same licks their whole career, almost, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, they had that's Albert Collins, he's, they, they play the same licks on every solo and yeah. nobody ever really got tired of it. So yeah. I think that's kind of a guitar player thing. I mean, guitar players are probably more excited when you learn, um, new techniques and do new things more than your average crowd. They just want to hear good songs and have a good time. So I try not to worry about it too much, Yeah. but, uh, but I still like, and, and I've, I've played a lot of different styles over the years. Like I said, I played country, I played rock and roll and heavy rock and, and, um, uh, you know, a lot of blues, you know, but, um, I never really played too much jazz or anything. Um, but I've learned some of it just from being around some, great musicians that I was in a band with, you know, like when I played in Dickie's band, I mean, everybody in his band was basically jazz players, you know, I mean, the, those guys, they were all Berkeley and Juilliard grads or something. And they, you know, they knew a lot more about um, music than, than him or I, you know, as far as technical stuff and jazz and things like that. Dickie wrote a lot of jazz oriented instrumentals and things like that. So, you know, um, I think I do some jazzy stuff, but I don't really, know it it's just influence from being around but but i could never just do a gig with a jazz band right now if they, if they invited right. me i would politely decline you know because <laughs> you know there's 15 chord changes on some of the songs and, and some of the chords i even if i know how to play them i don't know what they're called yeah. you know yeah which is which is another funny dicky story was he was showing me uh, uh 
the place where he wanted me to play solo on One Stop Bebop, which was called J.J.'s Alley at one time when the Owen Brothers did it. But he changed the name of it. And uh, it was this part in E, and he was showing me the chords, and he'd do E, and then he would do F. And then, but the chord he was using, the guys in the band were like, oh, he's doing E7 sharp 9, you know. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. And so, you know, and uh, I heard what they said. And I, I, I played that chord before. I didn't know what it was called. And then Dickie walked over to me and he said, I don't know what they call it, but I, I always call it Jimi Hendrix chord, you know. Yeah. And, uh, so that's what we always called it growing up. You know, it was like the chord, you know, first chord there in Purple Haze, when, you know, when he starts singing and stuff. And I think every, everybody called it that that I knew, you know, because I wasn't around very many trained musicians. So, yeah. But yeah, I'll tell you what, I, I've I've come to know quite a few guys that, you know, that are are trained that, are you know, uh, been to been to school and college and you know, whatever. And uh, they're different. They're a different breed. Then I think then the guys that you know just learn it you know from from mm-hmm. osmosis just from doing it you know uh, and there's a yeah, benefit, there's a benefit to both though you know yeah, so, there really is I mean you know there's great players you look at like you know guys like Robin Ford and Larry Carlton and guys like that yeah. that mm-hmm. and Steve Luger they really know music mm-hmm. you know and then you turn around and you look at a guy like Stevie Ray Vaughan you know that doesn't yeah. so. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. I mean, I think as long as you have a really a good ear and a good feel for what you yeah. do, if you can add that schooling on top to uh, on top of it, you really have something special because you're more trained and ready to do sessions and yeah. you know you can sit down and look at uh, charts and things like that. It, it's it's super helpful. I wish I would have done it when I was younger. Uh, you know, studied music. I I've had several guys in my band that. Uh, before that uh, attended, uh, you know, Musicians Institute or GIT out in California. And mm-hmm. um, they knew a ton more uh, about chord structure and inversions than, than I ever have. But it was good to be around them because I could see some of the stuff they were doing. Yeah, yeah. But, but I wouldn't care if they couldn't, if they didn't have a good feel for the blues, they would have been worthless to me, you know. Right. Uh, but, but they just happen to have it both. So if you can, if you can get all that, it's, you know, that's fantastic, you know. Yeah, if you got a good a good feel and a good sense of timing, you know that's that's half of it with the blues. I mean, that's yeah, uh, for sure. You yeah. know, I'd rather have a guy that you know that had a good feel that wasn't quite as technically good as somebody who you know yeah. could fly all over the neck and knew a million chords if if they just didn't have the right feel. You know, right, so, right, right. So. Uh, so what's the plans, you know, going forward? You're just going to, you know, hang in there and try to take whatever gigs come along and just pray this thing opens up soon? What's going to happen when it does open up? You got plans to, to tour or do another album? Yeah, I know sure. you just released an album, but, you know, with the whole COVID thing, you know, there's a lot of people that are already recording new ones, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, people got more time. Well, I thought yeah. about waiting to put mine out. Me and uh, Mike Zito, who owns the label, uh along with Guy Hill, yeah. uh, talked about uh, waiting a little bit. And, you know, we try to look at the pros and cons of, of waiting. And we're like, well, you know, maybe not that many people are going to put CDs out right now. And maybe it's a good time. To me, I just, I thought it was, was fine to put it out now, even though I couldn't get out and tour as much. Um, because I just look at it as a building block for maybe next year's gigs. If, you know, more people around the country like the CD, maybe they'd be more interested in having me for one of their festival or summer concert series next year. 
So it didn't make any sense to me to not put it out. And, um, yeah, I'm hoping things open back up the next couple of months so we can get out and, uh, the festival season is, is blown. So we'll probably just be playing regionally here around Texas and, uh, and just, uh, you know, try to get the new songs. <laughs> we haven't played that many songs on the new album because we hadn't practiced and we hadn't played that much. So yeah. we have, we have to go back in and learn these songs that, that I wrote a year and a half ago that we hadn't played much of <laughs> since then. Yeah, that's you know? tough. Yeah, and some of them have a lot of parts in them, <laughs> and so yeah. it's uh, it's going to be a uh, you know some rehearsals involved, and uh, just really try to get ready for next year. You know, um, yeah. we can play around here till the till the end of the year once things open back up, but uh, just try to concentrate on getting uh, better shows uh, for next year. You know, hopefully some more festivals and summer concert series than uh, than what I have been doing. I always do a few every year, but I'd like to to be able to fill up my whole summer with stuff like that, you know? Yeah, 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 that'd be great. Well, I'll tell you what, Mark, it was uh, it was really cool talking with you and getting the opportunity to, to meet you for the over the phone. <laughs> yeah, same here. I hope we get to meet in person sometime. I'll, I'll try to let you know if I'm ever up in your area. You know, uh, I was living in Columbus, Ohio there for about uh, oh, six years uh, went back and spent some time with my dad and I had, had a band based out of Columbus and we went over and played, you know, buddy guys in a few of those places in Chicago while we were there. Yeah. But, um, uh, and, you know, Slippery Noodle in Indianapolis. So, you know, we got probably within striking distance of you, so, but, but I'll try to let you know if I'm going to be in, in your area somewhere, if you're not playing a gig or something, maybe we can uh, meet up. Yeah, that'd be great. I love the noodle. You know, I go over yeah. there. I used to go over there quite a bit, mm-hmm. you know, I yeah, yeah, it's a fun place. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah, yeah. And that, but, uh, well, well, buddy, uh, you stay safe. Take care. Hey, I, I really appreciate you having me. Uh, you know, I feel honored. You have a lot of great uh, musicians that you've had on here, and uh, to be included, uh, you know, makes me feel good, and I, and I really appreciate it. Dad, not a problem at all. Not all right, so all. there you have it. Uh, Mark May, I want to thank Mark so much for coming on Guitar Talk. Uh, make sure you're checking him out at markmade.com. Go into his websites, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all those places where you can follow him and keep up with everything that he's doing and make sure that you're getting his latest uh, CD. And uh, when he gets back out on the road, you know, do what you do best. Go see him play. Now, this Friday on the 30th, uh, the rock band Blackstone Cherry is releasing their new album. So I've got a special episode of Guitar Talk that's going to happen this Friday, October 30th at uh, 3 p.m. Central Time with uh, Chris and Ben, the two guitar players for Blackstone Cherry. You're not going to want to miss this. They're a great, great band. They're good players. And uh, and it's kind of cool. You know, it's on the day of their release of their new album. So that's going to be a blast. And then a week from today, my next guest is going to be Joel Hookstra from Whitesnake. Now, if uh, you're familiar with Joel, you know he plays with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. He was touring with Cher. Uh, before that, he was with Night Ranger. And if you go to his website, you'll be amazed at everybody that he's played with. I mean, this guy's been around uh, he was the uh, number one guitar on the Rock of Ages musical on Broadway up until the time everything shut. But uh, Joel Hookstra is, uh, man, he, he, when I think of rock and roll, when I think of a rock guitarist, is Joel, man. He's, he's the guy. He can kill it. I mean, he can kill it. 
And if you've ever seen, you know, White Snake with him and Reb, oh my God. You know what I mean? That's like guitar heaven. It really is. So, uh, so a week from the day, 3 p.m. Central Time, uh, make sure you're tuning in for uh, Joel Hookstra from White Snake in the Trans Siberian Orchestra. We want to thank you so much for tuning in to Guitar Talk again. It's been a blast. I really appreciate the support. Don't forget to tune in this Friday for the special edition with Blackstone Cherry. Uh, boy, we got a lot of great shows coming up, and uh, we just hope you stay safe, and we will see you on the other side of all this, okay? Have a great week, y'all.